welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as usual, thrilled that you could join us today for what I know is going to be a highly entertaining show, because I've got on the line with me today one of the most uh, dynamic uh, personalities and accomplished bowhunters of our generation. That's none other than Mr. Randy Ulmer, a field editor here at Peterson's Bowhunting, and that's well down the list of all your many accomplishments in the sport randy thanks so much for being with me today yeah well thanks for having me yeah and uh i should also mention uh, right off the bat because uh, this is the first time that i've had a chance to have you on the show since it happened you are a relatively uh new inductee into the uh bow hunting hall of fame so or did i get that wrong is it the archery hall of fame I or are you in both now bow hunting hall of fame was in 1999 <laughs> gotcha. and the uh archery hall of fame just happened last year gotcha so you're in both now so you are a certified Hall of Famer, and that means that autographs are now, they've gone from 575 to 650 apiece, right? <laughs> I wished. I, I only wished. <laughs> well, uh, I certainly do congratulate you on the honor. Uh, well, well deserving, and uh, honestly, you know, I, I know you, you hate to talk about it, and I won't, I won't go on and on, but there aren't too many people, Randy, who have accomplished much uh, in the world worlds of both competitive archery and in bow hunting as you have so um you know it's a it's a privilege to certainly have you associated with peterson's bow hunting i've learned a lot from you over the years just editing your columns and uh you know appreciate uh, the knowledge that you bring to our readers uh because i know you've helped an awful lot of us over the years so thanks for that well, I appreciate you. I appreciate the kind word. Um, you know, we were talking here just before we started the show, you know, what, what topic should we hit on today? And I think that, you know, just going through some of your uh, basic shooting tips and the way that you prepare, um, some of the things, you know, that I now do as a result of advice that you've given me over the years, and whether you're a, a whitetail guy like me, you know, somebody who lives here back east, whether you're a western guy like Randy and you're after those pronghorns and elk and mule deer, uh, these are things that can benefit everybody. And if you're a new, relatively new bow hunter, I think you're going to glean a lot from this conversation. And if you're a guy who's been bow hunting for 20, 30, 40 years, I think that there's some things that you can get out of this because you can evaluate what you've been doing maybe relative to what Randy and I talk about. And there's some things that you might pick up uh, that can help you to be even better because as you know, Randy, you know, and maybe you just want to touch on this to start, a guy like you who's got multiple world championships, multiple record book animals over the course of, you know, probably 40 plus years of competitive shooting and bow hunting, you never stop trying to improve year to year, do you? Well, you can't. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is uh, um, I've started listening to, to uh, your radio show and, and podcasts recently. And, uh, you know, it's amazing 
how much you can pick up from anybody. Uh, I think, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but I think, uh, you know, when you stop learning, uh, you, you start going backwards. And, and especially with the advances, the technological advances in archery, uh, it, it's phenomenal uh, what you can learn from other people. So, yep, you never stop learning. And, uh, and, and really, you have to have um, you have to have that enthusiasm and that excitement to try this new arrow or that new bow or or improve your form a little bit because it's what somebody said. So yes, you can learn a great deal. And and you know the neat thing now, you know when I started. You know, there there was no internet, and really the only thing you had was magazine articles. And uh, you know, I started subscribing to to uh, Peterson's. Oh, geez, thirty some years ago when it came out, uh, and uh, Bowhunter magazine uh, even longer ago than that. And that's the only place you had to learn. And and my brother and I were self taught, so we had to learn things the hard way. Way you know, by by experimentation. And and now, truly, if someone was really interested in becoming a better shooter or just, uh, you know, a better bow hunter. Uh, there's so much information out there in magazines like Peterson's and the, the online stuff that, uh, that, that that your learning curve is so much better than ours was. And and uh, and and that's why I like doing things like this is because it, it helps people and, and people can listen to this while they're driving in their truck or whatever. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great tool. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great tool when you have great people too to like you to to help you know educate us one thing you know that i kind of want to start out with is you know i had mentioned to you that i think that uh as as an industry we we tend to do maybe not a very good job of of getting people started right when it comes to setting people up for success as bow hunters, particularly when it comes to the shooting. And what I mean by that is, you know, you get an average um, person who walks into a pro shop, they, they don't know anything about archery, and they're going to get set up with that first bow. And uh, there's lots of great bows out there. I don't really have any complaints about, you know, the average way that a pro shop sets up a bow or anything like that. But I've often wondered, as somebody who's struggled in the past quite a bit with target panic, and I imagine you've been through your battles over the years too, Randy, and I often wonder why it is that an, an index finger triggered release aid is kind of like the standard issue like you know when somebody signs up for the army they go to boot camp they get their standard issue gear and when somebody walks into a pro shop and they buy their first bow you know if it's a compound bow a hunting bow they're going to get that you know here's a $60 index finger release aid and I'm like most of those or many many of those release aids really have sloppy triggers and we're setting everybody up to start anticipating the shot and punch the trigger and it's only a matter of time before almost everybody you know has some bad habits that they've got to overcome and I, and I don't know you know it, it predates my time as to you know when that just sort of became the standard issue and I'm like there's nothing wrong don't get me wrong okay for everybody listening I, probably most of the people listening shoot an index finger release don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with shooting an index finger release I'm just saying that I think that there's a lot of value to learning 
how to get that surprise shot with a hinge release or a true tension release. And for me, I know it was only after I switched to a true tension release after talking to you and John Dudley and, and starting to shoot that quarter evolution, which I now, you know, practice and hunt with. I've never been more successful as a bow hunter than I am now. And it's because of the things I learned uh, through that. So I know you mentioned, Randy, you know, your own family you've introduced with hinge release and talk about that a little bit and why you know that's so beneficial because I'm going to start with the premise that 90% of all the bow hunters I know would become so much more confident and so much more successful if they learned to shoot with that kind of release and I'm going to throw that out there and there's all kinds of people because I know everybody hates change and they're like no this is what I've always used I'm not going to you know they're very resistant to this idea so don't take my word for it take Randy Andy Ulmer's word for it. Go. The floor is yours, sir. Well, I, I think, you know, uh, giving these pro shops uh, the benefit of the doubt, what they're doing is is everyone shot a gun. Everyone that goes into a pro shop, I would say 95% of those people are growing up shooting guns, and, and uh, now they want to transition to archery. Uh, so one of the tr- the index uh, the index finger release aids, one of the things that it does is gives you that familiarity of pulling the trigger with your index finger as you have with your shotgun, your pistol, your rifle. The other thing is it, it's very simple and easy to learn. Uh, and also those that particular type of release aid is the cheapest release aid out there. And w- one of the things that the pro shop's trying to do, I believe, is is get people out the door uh, without a huge expenditure and also make it fun for them from, from the very beginning because they're doing it because they, they want to try it. And if it's not fun from the beginning, then uh, they're going to quit. Um, so it, it would be a hard thing to change. Now, you know, people like you and I that have been hunting for a long time realize the, the pitfalls that, that that's going to eventually cause for the vast majority of people that start that way uh, with anticipation, target panic, and, and all the other things that, that come along with that. Uh, you mentioned my family, and before the we started recording, we had, we had talked about what I did with my kids and my wife. Uh, when I introduced them to, to shooting, uh, I actually... Well, I let the kids shoot with their fingers first, just flinging arrows. But once they wanted to start really shooting and hunting, um, I gave them a hinge release, which is a sort of completely surprise release. And and I, I knew they weren't going to just quit. And, and uh, they shot those releases and, and uh, eliminated the possibility of, of, well, it doesn't eliminate the possibility, of, but it vastly decreases the possibility that you're going to have all the psychological issues that come with an index finger release. But if, if a pro shop were to give someone a hinge release, I think they would be very frustrated because it's something that you need a lot of help with uh, in learning how to shoot it. And the pro shop couldn't just send somebody home with that particular setup. However, that being said, for your listeners who have uh, yeah, this know, is, maybe this been is, shooting this for is a, a year more, or two. more advanced group, Randy. These are Peterson's Bowhunting Podcast listeners. Well, yes. I mean, that's obvious. <laughs> They're obviously very astute, very discerning. But this group, they... 
like for you, instance, for instance, and, and uh, several other very prominent bow hunters uh, and editors and, and writers uh, have have talked to me through the years and said, "Hey, you know, I've got this problem. I don't want to talk to you about it <laughs> to anybody else." But uh, I've become somewhat of a little bit of a psychologist. But uh, and and they say what to do, and I, I say, you know, the very best thing to do is is get a hinge release. And this is probably the same information I gave. Get a hinge release. Get in front of a blank bell, close your eyes, and it's going to be a, a learning process. But your, your listeners, uh, the very best thing they can do. Well, let me back up a step. Um, one of the reasons uh, guys like you or me or um, you know any, any other fairly successful bow hunter is successful is because when they get an opportunity, they, they capitalize on it. And the time that your target panic or your anticipation is going to really get you when you are most likely to have issues with it is when you're facing the most important shot of your life. And then that's when you're, you know, you finally get that big buck within range. And uh, if you will teach your body to not have those in their mind, not to have those issues, you're going to be so much better off. Um, and again, the reason we, we are successful is because when we get an opportunity, we capitalize on it. Uh, I'll use my nephew as a great example. Uh, my nephew, I, he's been hunting with me since he was eight or nine years old. And, and uh, you know, I taught him how to, to shoot the, the right way. And he's a phenomenal shot. He's probably the best shot in Arizona. Um, when he gets an opportunity, and I've watched it over the last, he's killed six big bucks with me in Colorado over the last six years. You know, when he draws his bow back, it's it's as good as done. Yet I take other people out, uh, and I watch other people hunt. And, you know, when they draw their bow back, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's just uh, it's just as likely that they're going to miss or wound as they are to kill. So, um, I think the very best thing most bow hunters, if I could pick one thing that most bow hunters could do to improve their shooting, not not, not necessarily their hunting. Most bow hunters are actually pretty good bow hunters, but when it really breaks down, oftentimes is that is that you know that clutch period, you know, the last 15, 20 seconds. That's when things break down, and if you can learn to make a good shot in those in those encounters, uh, you're going to be so much better. So I think the very best thing that that the average bow hunter and I realize that Peterson bow hunters are not average bow hunters, but any bow hunter can do is to in the off season when when you're all finished bow hunting for the year, uh, give somebody your index finger release. Don't let them give it back to you till summertime, and just start shooting a hinge release. And it'll be very awkward and very difficult to shoot at first because your body wants to know, your mind wants to know when that arrow is going to leave, and you won't know when the arrow is going to leave. But I think the very best thing they can do is shoot that for a an off season and, and give it a really good try. I mean, commit to it and practice with it. And I do not hunt, well, I, I very rarely hunt with, an, with a hinge release. Uh, I always have it with me. I practice with it all summer. I practice with it during the whole off season. Don't shoot my index finger release very much at all. And then, uh, you know, I sight in my bow with my index finger release. But when I'm back in camp, uh, I'm shooting my 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 uh, hinge release. And the purpose of that is it keeps you completely honest, keeps you locked into the shot, uh, eliminates your anticipation problems, uh, gives you good follow through. And again, you're teaching your subconscious 
to make a, a perfect shot. And then when you transition to the index finger release, uh, you're trained. And the more you shoot the index finger release, the more that training unravels. Uh, so, you know, you have to be very careful. And, and, and not everybody's the same. Some people get target panic and, and severe. I've never had what you'd call real target panic, but I have anticipation where, you know, I want that shot to go off when it's on the spot. And uh, that anticipation is what I'm trying to eliminate. Yeah. But when you practice with a, a, a go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, what you talked about is, is teaching that subconscious as opposed to the conscious. Because as bow hunters, okay, like you said, it's there's a difference between being a good bow hunter and a good killer. You know, and you even hear that. You hear that a lot when you're in hunting camps, you know. Um you know, I, I get to travel, you know, to a fair number of hunting camps every year. And, you know, they'll say, well, we got to we've got to get a killer in that stand. And, you know, I hear outfitters say this because what happens is, it, you know, it's sad to say, Randy, but you and I both know it's true. There's a good number of people in any given outfit and hunting camp around the country. They're not good killers. They sit in that tree. Maybe they have an encounter with that buck. Maybe they've missed a shot at that buck. And then at some point, you know, the next group of hunters comes in and, and the outfitter's like, I got to get a killer into that stand. And so what is it that separates the hunter from the killer? And to me, it's, it is that shooting with the subconscious versus the conscious. You know, you've been giving me a hard time this fall because I did, uh, I was very, very fortunate to have a, an opportunity at a couple big, big whitetails this fall. And, and I did back in September in Kentucky, I, I killed a, a big velvet whitetail that scored in the 180s and I had a lot of people ask me Randy you know were you nervous when you shot that deer and honestly you know I guess I should probably say that I was but truly and honestly I, I really wasn't particularly nervous about it and there, there were two things th that really played into that and, and you had to do with both of them okay and the first is what we've been talking about shooting with this true tension release and again just for people to understand that Randy's been talking about practicing with a hinge release which is a a, a release where you have to pull through the shot and, and the the hook that hooks onto your knocking loop uh, travels around uh, a piece of metal and when you've pulled through the shot enough the hinge releases and the string then goes and, and the arrow's on its way and then there's you know the index finger releases which we've been talking about which as most of you all know you've got to pull the trigger to get it to go and then there's kind of a middle ground which I call a true tension release I don't know if you have a different term for it, Randy, but it's a it's a handheld release. It's not a hinge release, but it doesn't have a trigger either. It has a safety. And so the release that I use, I hook onto my string and I draw my bow and I have to hold the safety down to draw my bow because if I didn't, as soon as the tension built up on the string, my, my hook would release and the arrow would go. So I hold the safety down until I get to full draw. And once I'm at full draw, I can let my safety off and I can hold there all day if I want to uh, because it, the hook won't release until I build up about five or six pounds of pressure over the holding weight of my bow and if I want to let down I can do that I just re-engage the safety and let down but to shoot all I do is aim and pull and aim and pull and aim and pull and I know that eventually 
when I build up enough tension, the arrow is going to go, but you don't know exactly when that's going to be. Now, there are ways to cheat with that kind of release, Randy. I know if I pull really hard, I can shoot quickly if I need to, but if I don't need to, the greatest comfort that I have and the biggest difference, and I've described this many times, when I was shooting with my index finger release, I would always have that anticipation, like you mentioned, when the pin is on the spot, you've got to shoot now, right at that exact moment, and you'd consciously trigger that shot by squeezing the trigger or punching the trigger, slapping the trigger, whatever word you want to insert there. And so you'd be trying to always time your shot. Whereas with this kind of a release and the training that goes along to building up that comfort level, instead of having the anxiety of having to make an active decision, an active action to make the shot go where I want it to, now it's the exact opposite. I'm just looking at that pin and if the pin is on the animal's vitals, all I have to do is wait because when the shot goes off, the animal's going to be dead. So I know that it's a crazy thing and I hesitate to even say this, Randy, because I'm probably jinxing myself, but do you know that I haven't made a single bad shot or miss on an animal since I started shooting with this release? Because I know that if the pin is on the vitals when the bow goes, that's where the arrow has to go. And it's a completely freeing feeling. I've never felt more free or less tense about those encounters. And to me, it's all about changing my whole thought process about the shot. You know, and it's been a, it's been an amazing transformation because I, I was so bad at the worst of my target panic. It was something that gradually got worse after I got this job and got to the point that I struggled to hit a block target from 20 yards away because I couldn't get the pin on. And then I'd try to lift and punch at the same time and I'd be shooting arrows over the top of the block target into the woods behind my house. I mean, it was embarrassingly bad and and really sucked a lot of my joy from archery. You know, to go from there to where I'm at now has been, you know, absolutely incredible. So for those of you who are listening, hopefully you're not as bad off as I was. But if if any of these issues that Randy and I have been talking about are a problem, you know, go ahead and reprogram yourself. Get a hold of a release or a true tension release or both, you know, and like Randy said, I totally relate to what you said about how you know, I carry uh, a thumb, uh, a handheld thumb trigger release as my backup in my pack. And I, I hear what you're saying, Randy. When you've trained yourself well, you can shoot for a little while with a trigger release and do just fine. But I do agree, if you'd continue to use that over and over again, some of those same little bad habits start to creep back in, and then you need to go back and reinforce the good habits. Well, um, you know, you hit on a good point uh, about feeling like you wanted to quit or, or you were just so frustrated. And I would guess uh, from the people that I know and the people I've been around over the last 40 years that the number one reason people quit archery, the, the attrition rate we have in archery, I would say the number one reason is because people get target panic. And it is such an over, for those of you that haven't experienced it, it is overwhelming. You cannot, I mean, in the worst cases of target panic, you you cannot even put your pin on the target, and uh, it may, makes people quit. And uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, <laughs> you know, had 
you know, had Christian not learned to shoot and shoot without anticipation and anxiety, he uh, he, he's a little modest. He killed some phenomenal deer this year. Um, I I've got uh, I've got uh, whitetail envy. I uh, (laughs) Christian's killed some phenomenal deer. Uh, Christian, I mean, I'm I'm not the uh, I'm not the host on the show, but uh, explain to the listeners if you would maybe just go through it. You killed two I mean, two bucks of a lifetime this year. Go through the shot process or, or even a little further back in the hunt and talk about those two deer and, and how your uh, how your new training uh, how you might have missed those deer had you not uh, gone to a, a tension release and and, uh, and uh, go through that if you would. Yeah, well let's... Well first tell us how big the other one was. It, uh, it looked on, almost or as, as big as the one you just that, that, that giant velvet buck which is, you guys got to see a picture of that. It'll be in the magazine, I'm sure, if it hasn't been already. Yeah, and it's going to be on, it'll be on Bowhunter TV as well, because we filmed that one for the show, too. So, um, yeah, the other deer was a Kansas buck, and, you know, we didn't actually put a, I didn't score it when I was out there officially. We just, I know it had 27-inch main beams, and everyone kind of agrees it's going to go... You know, somewhere gross, somewhere in the 170s. It was a six by four. So, you know, if it had a matching side like that strong six, it probably would have been a deer that scored well into the 180s, maybe even, you know, getting up there towards 190, which of course is a, a pretty darn big whitetail. Um, but with the, you know, even as it was, an absolutely tremendous deer. But let's talk about that Kentucky deer because that kind of sets up a, go- a good story. And a a little bit of honesty, you know, for me in that, okay, let's let's take a step back from being, you know, the editor of Peterson's Bow Hunting and say, I'm just a regular Pennsylvania deer hunter. And, you know, back before I was blessed enough and fortunate enough to get a job that brought me into the bow hunting industry, you know, I'd watch, you know, outdoor television or read magazines just like everybody else. And I'd think, you know, yeah, if I had that guy's job or if I had all the opportunities, you know, that a Randy Elmer had or, you know, a Lee and Tiffany or you name it, right, I could kill those big bucks too. And I want to say straight up that, you know, there's definitely some truth to that. There's a lot of people, Randy, listening to this show right now who are tremendous bow hunters who have been doing this longer than I have and are every bit of the bow hunters that I have. And sometimes we're just not fortunate to live in the area or get to go to the places where, you know, you have big bucks. So to set this up in, in, in Kentucky, you know, I went down there to Whitetail Heaven. Uh, it's an outfitter down there. They do a tremendous job. I had hunted there two years ago uh, and I didn't get a buck on that trip but I saw some good deer and I actually saw other clients take some really tremendous bucks when I was in camp and I had always wanted to get a velvet buck so I, I wanted to get back long story short my schedule in 2016 didn't allow it but so it took me two years but here in the fall of 2017 I got back uh, for the opening week because Kentucky's neat they've got a basically first Saturday in September opener. So you've got about a week to 10 day window where you've got a real good opportunity to potentially take one of these mature bucks in velvet. And the nice thing about that time of the year, in addition to the fact that you can get a a velvet buck is they're still on that summer feeding pattern, Randy. So if you've got, uh, you know, some food plots or food sources where they've been coming in regularly, you've got a real opportunity to do that. 
So, uh, you know, when I got down there to camp, uh, the outfitter, Tevis McCauley, he showed me some trail camera pictures of this buck, and he said, you know, we put a stand in there for you. We set it up. I told him, I was like, hey, if you're, if you're going to hang a stand, remember I'm left-handed, you know? So, that, I mean, they set up a perfect stand on this little clover plot, uh, set up perfectly for a lefty. Now, that's all great, you know, and again, go back to anyone who's listening. It's like, man, you know, you got it made. But remember, I'm down there with a camera crew, okay? Well, with cameraman, a crew. It's, it's a glorified word. It's just me and a camera guy. But but these are situations, Randy, that could cause pressure, right? Because it's just like when you're shooting a big shot in a tournament, right? I've shown up there. The editor of Peterson's Bowhunting. We're filming for Bowhunter Magazine. The outfitter knows there's a really good buck in the area. They've hung a stand for me. Now, all the pressure's on me, right? I'm expected to go in there and kill that deer. Um, that's the kind of thing when you have target panic bad. Trust me, because I've been there, Randy. That can be almost debilitating to know they've the company has spent money to have this camera person with me. The outfitter wants me to, to kill this deer. If I and, and, and what you do when you're in a bad place with your shooting, you live in dread fear of the opportunity. You live in dread fear of the opportunity because you're scared to death. You're going to screw it up. I don't know if you've ever been there, Randy, but I can tell you that is a really low and lonely place to be as a bow hunter when you're supposed to be a quote unquote professional who's good at this. Okay. Well, that uh, that takes all the fun out of the hunt right there. I mean, all the fun. So, so now, thankfully, right, I'm in a much better place. And so, again, it's that whole conscious and subconscious thing, right? Because consciously, as an intelligent person, I know that, you know, I'm very blessed, right? But it's work. I mean, you're down there. It's your quote. It's work. You're down there. I'm, I'm going to be writing a story. I've got the camera guy. We've got the TV show. You know, the outfitters excited about possibly, you know, maybe having me be able to kill this deer and the exposure that I can bring for him. Okay, consciously, I know all that, right? It's just like you in a big tournament. Consciously, you know that this next shot is going to be the difference between, you know, being on the podium or finishing in out of the money, right? You know that. You can't not know that. You're too intelligent not to know that. But at the same time, you can't worry about any of that when the encounter actually happens or when you step to the shooting line. Right, Randy? Understand what I'm saying? Oh, definitely. Okay. Oh, I do. <laughs> So, so, so that's the setup, right? So that's the situation. And so we hunt the first night and don't see the deer. Saw several other nice bucks, a bunch of does. Didn't even have a buck uh, actually come in uh, really in range, um, but it was a good hunt. And um, so we went out the second night. And uh, kind of the same scenario. There are actually, most of the deer seem to be coming out of the woods about 80, 90 yards off to our left. And then they were crossing the food plot and going up the hill uh, towards a larger soybean field and feeding. And uh, I actually turned to the camera guy uh, after, uh, there was an eight-pointer, an older deer, a big eight probably would have shot him if he would have come in the first night. He was just a, a, a real mature deer. He wouldn't have scored 
all that highly, but he had a, a big, big body. And he came out and, and kind of followed the same path as all the other deer. And I, I turned and I said to the camera guy, I said, uh, I don't know what's going on tonight, but just seems like all those deer want to kind of head out there off to the left out of range and we're not having any opportunity at all and, and literally as I finished saying that to him I turned my head and at the edge of the brush just across the food plot was this buck that I ended up killing with his head just kind of poking out of the brush like he had stuck his head out to kind of take stock of the situation and uh, you know Randy you've said something several times in your columns over the years and it's a question that you ask yourself and I don't know if I've ever told you this but this is now a question I ask myself every single time I get a good animal within bow range and the question is and this is a question I hope everyone listening starts to ask themselves why am I in such a hurry to screw this up (laughs) that is some of the best advice that you have ever given Randy because as bow hunters when you get an animal I mean a big animal right like it's gonna be your best buck or your best bull or it's that deer that you've been watching on trail camera all summer and now he's finally there because when this deer first appeared he was only about 35 yards away and so he's basically in range and then he stepped out and he came out into the plot and turned broadside but I knew that he wasn't relaxed you could just see that he was tense he had his ears all perked up and he was looking all around just checking things out trying to make sure there was no danger well of course my first instinct all of our first instinct is to draw that bow and take the shot right away because we've been waiting for that opportunity and it's about all we can do to stay within ourselves and I I literally do this Randy I ask myself why are you in such a hurry to screw this up because the wind was perfect the wind was right in my face and I knew now in Kentucky you're allowed to to bait and feed deer too so he was in the clover plot there was some corn off to the right I knew why he was there I knew what he wanted to do I knew that he hadn't seen us and I knew that he wouldn't smell us and if I would just be patient and let the animal have time to relax that I could then have a better opportunity to draw the bow and to make the shot and so literally for about five minutes I stood there just holding my bow with my release hooked on the string and I just kept telling myself over and over again he's going to relax he's going to settle down and eventually he did and he started to take a few more steps and he put his head down and I said now all I have to do is draw the bow and put the pin on there and it's like I told you Randy when once you're at full draw when you when you're shooting the right way with that surprise release you know that if you're aim is true if the pin is on the vital when the when that shot goes that that's where the arrow's going and so it just felt really good and and I you know I remember having the pin there and I remember you know just pulling through the shot and and when the arrow went I had a luminoc on the arrow and I saw the arrow hit and the, the deer jumped up and spun around and was off into the woods in a flash but just in that split second you know I knew the shot was good and I turned to the cameraman and I said, you know, that buck is done. There's just no way that he's going to go far because it was just perfect. And so, you know, that 
whole situation, you know, a situation where all the pressure of the world could have been on my shoulders, where I could have been feeling all the tension and the anxiety of, you know, the encounter itself with a world-class deer like that, or the expectations that might come with being, you know, quote unquote, a, a professional or an industry hunter, you know, or trying to deliver that result for the outfitter who had been, you know, so diligent in patterning that deer and putting that opportunity in front of me or you know the expectations of having the camera rolling or whatever to be able to put that all aside because the shot process has become something that kind of just takes care of itself man that it, it just it really frees me you know it may, and then once it's over right the shot's over man now you can now you can celebrate you know and now it's like everybody's happy because everyone did their part and I was able to do my part and um so I don't know. I, I went on and on there, Randy, but that was kind of, you know, the whole the whole thought process, you know, in the setup. Well, I think you, you all of it. Uh, you didn't use the word, but all of it boils down to one word, and that's confidence. Um, when you're confident in your shooting, if, when you're confident in your shooting ability, there's several things that it allows you to do. Um, it allows you to relax, and uh, we all hunt for one reason, really, and that's just to have fun. And uh, when you're not confident in your shooting ability you know you, you you almost don't want that opportunity like you said but when you're confident you can enjoy it and the other thing is when you're really not confident uh, it, it's so hard especially in a situation like that the biggest buck of your life is in front of you and uh, you know it, 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 it shows maturity as a bow hunter to be able to sit there and wait for the right opportunity and geez that took me 25 years to get to that point but you have to wait for the right opportunity uh, because there's so many times where you get in such a hurry, your 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 heart is pounding in your ears, and and uh, you just want that whole situation over with because really you're in in a state of panic or buck fever or, or whatever you want to call it. And once you develop that confidence in your shot and 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 your ability as a bow hunter you realize that your odds actually go up if you wait. Um, and, uh, you know, kudos to you for having gone through that whole process because there's a lot of bow hunters that, that don't take that one difficult step of realizing, you know, it's kind of like a 12-step program for alcoholics or drug the first The first step is you have to admit you have a problem. And once you admit you have a problem and, and, uh, and, and, and tell yourself, hey, I've got to do something about this, um, then you're on your way to you know being in the situation where you're you're in uh, where you can make that shot. Now, now tell us about your other whitetail if you don't mind. I mean, I, I, I love good hunting stories, and I'm sure your listeners do too. Jeez, Randy, you're you're make. I've got the great Randy Omer on the episode, and he's making me hijack the episode. I, I, well, I'm not sure I, like about I this. Say, I've got uh, I, you know I've always wanted to kill a big whitetail, and I've killed a lot of decent whitetails, but you know it's kind of too far away for me to, to really be into it and uh, I, I have to live vicariously through others and, and uh, I wouldn't have wanted to be anybody but Christian Berg this fall <laughs> you know what I'm talking about well um, so this other deal in Kansas this was uh, this was a different hunt because I was just out there uh, with my friend John Vaca John is a, 
is the uh, a pro staff uh, coordinator for Vista Outdoor. So Gold Tip, uh, Primos, Bushnell would be the the three brands that would be most germane to to us. They've got a bunch of firearm stuff too. Um, but John just has a little lease out in Kansas. He's got a a, a friend uh, who who owns a little bit of farm ground out there. I think he's got about three or four hundred acres that he has access to, and he just invited a couple of us to come out there and join him uh, for a hunt this fall. So we put in for the tags uh, back in the, the spring or the summer, I don't remember, but uh, anyway, was fortunate enough to draw the archery tag. So I went out there to hunt with John, and uh, it was just kind of a similar situation. Now, now being from back east here in Pennsylvania, you know, I'm used to hunting in areas where there's quite a bit of timber. And uh, even in farm country here, you know, there's usually some fairly sizable woodlots scattered in, in amongst the fields. And this was my first time hunting Kansas. And uh, I don't know if you've hunted Kansas, Randy, but uh, you know what a shelter belt is, I imagine, anyway. Yes. <laughs> and so in between, you know, they got big fields out there in Kansas. And there, there's not a whole lot of woods to speak of anyway, little clumps of trees here and there. And, of course, you've got a lot of CRP and usually there's a little bit of shrubs out there maybe amongst the crp grass and the deer will just disappear into that sea of grass and live out there it's really different than the kind of habitat i'm used to here but these shelter belts are funny because that's where uh, john had set up a stand along this one shelter belt and uh He's like, the, the bucks are really working this scrape. There's a bunch of scrapes along the field edge there. We were out there. It was prime rut. I got out there, I think, on like the 2nd of November or something like that, and we were going to be hunting that whole first week of November. And... Uh, it just feels weird. You know, it's hard sometimes when you travel to hunt. And again, this it's hard to, you have to, you know, you mentioned confidence earlier. Sometimes it's hard to feel confident when you're hunting in a place that's so different than the kind of places you're used to hunting. Because this shelter belt is probably about 300 yards long and about 25 yards deep. You know, it's literally just a little strip of trees in between uh, an alfalfa field in front of me and a cattle pasture behind me. And I mean, when I say behind me, I was in a ladder stand that was about 10. That's the other thing about Kansas. This ladder stands that they hunt about, they're about 10 feet tall, Randy. And I mean, if you tried to hunt whitetails in Pennsylvania out of 10-foot stands, I would venture to guess 90% of the deer that come past your location are going to bust you right away. You know what I mean? I mean, the pressure's just higher here and the deer seem a little more wired up. And, and so, you know, when you're sitting in a strip of trees like that and you're like, this is kooky, you know, and I'm in a 10 feet off the ground and I just don't know about this. Um, but he said, hey, there's there's some good bucks, you know, working in this area. And the, there were scrapes all, all along the edge of that tree line. So I knew that there were some bucks around. And he had, uh, again, trail cam trail cameras. But I'll tell you what, Randy, I don't know how much you use them for. I know you do a lot of elk and mule deer. They have really revolutionized the whitetail world. It's like it's rare anymore to have really big bucks running around that pe people don't know about, you know. And so he, he knew, you know, again, there was a couple couple really good bucks in this area and um you know it's funny the first time talk about all the little things the first time i saw this buck 
was at about 1.30 in the afternoon, and I heard something off to my right, and I turned my head, and this buck was coming out of that little shelter belt behind me, off to my right, working his way out toward the field, and as I just reached over to get my bow off the hook, he kind of caught a little bit of movement, must have, and he kind of jumped and, and and ran out to the field edge and took a, a right-hand turn and ran off uh, up away from me. And I mean, my heart just sunk because I'm sure you've had times, Randy, where you either did blow it or you thought you had blown it. And I mean, you know that feeling, right? Especially when you saw, I mean, I saw the rack and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, what an animal. And to have even an encounter with something like that and then to have possibly blown it um you know it just kind of leaves you kind of like with a sick feeling in your stomach randy you ever been there <laughs> every season almost every deer uh, you know uh, yeah mule deer hunting is a little different than whitetail hunting you blow it more often than you than you are successful by far more often so yeah i had that feeling a lot <laughs> so go ahead so he runs off and i'm thinking you idiot you know i mean how could you you know how could you have blown that and but then i started to think to myself and this is where experience you know i don't care if whether it's being around bigger, you know, class of animals or just little things, you know. But I thought to myself, you know, there's no other cover to speak of, like, as far as the eye can see, right? What are the odds this buck ran all the way down that shelter belt to the end of it and kept going cross country, right? I'm like, maybe he's still around because he probably, like, lives in this stupid patch of trees, right? And and then about 20 minutes later, here he is behind my stand, Randy, just poking around in the brush. It's This shelter belt's only about 20, 25 yards wide, but it's kind of thick back there. Would you believe that this buck then comes directly behind my stand and like... Pokes around, is like eating something off the ground. I don't know if he was getting nuts or just nibbling leaves. He was like sniffing the ground. He literally came at one point. He was 10 yards quartering away with his head behind a tree. And there was absolutely no shot, Randy, because there were no shooting lanes trimmed out behind this stand at all. I couldn't believe it. But then and then he walked away again. He just left. But see, at that point, I was like, okay, right? What do we know? I had spooked the deer a little bit, but obviously he wasn't spooked that bad, and he was still in the area. So I'm like, he is going to, he's, you know, he's still here. I'm going to get an opportunity in all likelihood at some point. And I said, you know what I got to do? I've got to move my bow hook. So I unscrewed my bow hook, and I moved it over a little bit so that my bow was hanging right in front of my hand, so that if I got another chance at this deer all I had to do was just put my hand on the handle and and just lift the bow right off the hook without having to move at all because I didn't want to get busted again and sometimes you know crazy stuff like that it seems so minor but as you get a little more experience right tiny little things like that that you might do can make a big difference you know probably should have had it hanging there in the first place but live and learn so 
then I think it was around 4.30, uh, I saw a deer coming, and it was a spike buck. And a spike buck came out into the field in front of me. And then I saw this buck was behind. And uh, this was an interesting one because he came out and uh, he worked uh, one of the scrapes that was right out there along the field edge. And then he hit a licking branch. And then he came out in front of me and he was kind of quartering toward me and he was feeding out in the field. And at that point, I came to full draw and... I just wanted to wait for him to turn a little more broadside and to hopefully take his front leg and move the shoulder, uh, you know, the scapula forward to open up that vital area. And this is another situation where, you know, I think experience comes into play because I held for a couple of minutes and he never did turn and and open it open up he was still slightly quartering too and i don't know why i can't even remember exactly what gave me this thought but there was something about his body language i actually started to think that he was going to take another step forward toward me and almost come like he was going to be facing you know head on randy which really would have been you know like a non-shooting angle and i was starting to get tired from holding it full draw and I was like if he does that and then he's looking right at me and I'm going to have to let down and I don't know if I'll get drawn again and I just then I actually started to think about Bill Winkie you know it's funny I've been giving you credit so being the editor here has been great because I learned from so many good bow hunters you know you and Bill you know chief among them Bill of more recent years has talked a lot in some of the articles he's written about whitetail hunting about all the taboo shot angles you know, because Bill actually, he draws now more draw weight than I do. I think Bill probably draws, you know, close to 80 pounds maybe. I only pull like 62 pounds. But but Bill has taken quite a few quartering two shots at big bucks in recent years and discussed that and, you know, the, 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 the modern equipment and how effective it is and stuff. And he wasn't quartering too badly towards me, but it was a slight quartering too. And I thought, I said to myself, you know what, I've now seen this buck three times. Two times he's left without me getting an opportunity. I don't know how many more times I'm going to see this deer, but that sure is the kind of deer that you'd like to take home to Pennsylvania. I think if I just slide over here to the left on the shoulder blade, maybe punch through that back half of the scapula where it kind of thins out, I'll get one long, probably liver. I'm going to do this. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe I was crazy, right? I mean, good batter. And I'm like, you're going to make well, this tell shot. Tell the listeners, how, how far was the shot? It was only about uh, 25 yards. Oh, so it was very doable. It was very, very doable. Oh, I knew I could hit where I was aiming. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to do this because otherwise this deer is liable to, you know, see me let down or run off. And, and if he gets spooked bad enough, he's not going to come back, you know. And so I went ahead and took the shot and uh, it looked really good. You know, again, it, these shots, it's like, you know, it's like a broken, it's like Groundhog Day. Every time I shoot, you know, with this release, if, if the 
shop process repeats itself, the result repeats itself. You know, we always say, you know, if, if you take a modern bow, a modern compound bow and put it in a shooting machine, you know, it can pound the bullseye over and over and over again. So when we go out in the backyard on the range and shoot and we don't pound the bullseye over and over again, you know, it's only operator error, right? So that's what I like about shooting with a surprise release is that it it limits that operator error, right? That very your goal as a human being shooting a bow is to reduce the variability as much as possible, right, Randy? Because the bow is the bow, and the bow does what the bow does, and the bow does what the bow does time after time after time after time. So if you can get yourself shooting where you're doing kind of what you do time after time after time, well, then the consistency in shooting and the the group sizes, you know, get smaller and smaller. So anyway, long story short, the shot was good um the i looked grabbed my binos and i looked at my arrows sitting out there in the field uh it was covered in blood from stem to stern and um you know long story short the buck ran about 80 yards he ran out into the field and cut back towards the tree line and i stayed in my stand i texted john and waited till he got over and then after he got over i climbed down and i was finding some blood out in the field and i'm trying to follow the blood trail and john took one, one look at my arrow and he said which way did you say the deer ran and I was like over that way and he's like ah I'm going to find it. <laughs> he was more yeah. confident than me and he walked down there and then the next words I heard out of John's mouth were oh my god <laughs> and then he saw the buck laying there and I ran over and we celebrated so yeah it was it was something so so that was well, I think two. there's a couple of things you can glean out of that story at least uh, from my perspective first of all um, you know you're used to hunting in, in fairly heavy timber, thick trees, and uh, in and higher up, and you know, so you've got a good background. One thing that one of the things that we're always concerned about in western hunting is is being skyline and you were probably just a little bit skyline so the amount of movement that you are used to being able to do uh you know you're talking about a new environment i, I think that was your mistake is is you were weren't you were more exposed than you're used to being the other thing for me is and, and i've learned this by you know I, I spend all day glassing mule deer and you know several times in a morning or an evening you'll see deer a group of deer and some deer will panic and run a hundred yards or whatever, and they don't know what they saw. They just got a little panicked, and and uh, you have to be confident. And you know, and that deer didn't know what he saw. He did not know he saw a human, and so uh, you know he. Even though you thought, oh, geez, it's over with. Uh, usually, I mean, geez, ninety percent of the time. Uh, when a deer kind of panics a little bit like that, just because they think they saw something, they calm down right away. And, and you experienced that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you just kind of have to stay, you have to stay with it. You don't really ever know how it's going to turn out, but, you know, you just try to remain as positive as you can. And so, um, you know, it worked out. Well, that's so, neat. That is, uh, well, uh, I, the readers are all going to get to see your pictures, but those are, I mean, truly two bucks of a lifetime. So uh, you're going to retire from whitetail hunting, I assume, uh, and, <laughs> and move on to bigger and better things. Well, uh, you know, probably not, Randy. And the thing is, you know, people joke, of course, because they're like, well, you know, now you got to get a 200 or something. I'm like, no, you don't. I, I think I'll still be pretty happy shooting. <laughs> 
you know, a good representative buck for whatever area I happen to be hunting in. And living here in Pennsylvania, I surely better not be holding out for a 200 before I shoot on my next buck. Actually, you know, funny enough, I did end up killing a buck here in Pennsylvania in in uh, archery season, and it was uh, it was a pretty nice buck. Nothing nothing like the ones I killed in Kentucky or Kansas, but a good buck that I had had on camera on the stand uh, over the summer, and that was kind of cool too because you know both of those hunts, the one in Kentucky, of course, was an outfitted hunt, and then getting invited by John to come out and hunt with him on his lease. But you know, of course, John had put that stand up and stuff, and. As much as it's fun to travel around, and especially when you get to go to states like Kentucky and Kansas where there's a lot more big deer than there are here at home, I still get a ton of satisfaction from hunting here in Pennsylvania just because I really enjoy, you know, all the parts of the hunting. It's not just the killing. You know, there's a lot to be said for building up your bow hunting experience and, and staying cool in those moments. But, you know, the scouting, the hanging the stands, the picking the stand locations, and that was the neat thing about the Pennsylvania buck. It was just a spot I had scouted out in the summer and I hung a stand in July and I waited until the 28th of October to sit it for the first time and I didn't see a deer until 9.51 that morning and when I did it was this buck that I ended up killing and uh, he came along the hillside above my stand and I was able to stop him with a with a mouth grunt uh, right in the, a shooting lane that I had trimmed and it was the only clear shot I would have had and I knew so I drew my bow and anchored as he was coming towards the lane and was able to get him stopped there and, and made a perfect shot and he ran about 30 yards and died and so he's not going to make any record books but you know those hunts are special too because um, you know I still consider myself a like I said several times, you know, I'm just a regular Pennsylvania deer hunter, and I enjoy all the parts of the hunt, and I enjoy the scouting and the trail cam photos and hanging the stands, you know, if not just as much as, you know, shooting the deer close to it. You know, it's all part of the game, and, and, and I don't want to be, you know, one of those guys who's just spoiled, and, I, you know, I just roll into camp and put a big deer in front of me. You know, it's, it's all, the whole hunting experience is special to me, and I know it is to you too, Randy. Well, and that's why I really haven't hunted whitetails that much because all my whitetail hunts has been hunts where I've been invited out by a friend and, and, you know, they take you out and it's very generous of them, but they take you out and before light and they say, okay, follow these, you know, little, you know, uh, reflectors to your stand and then climb up there and you climb up there and either spend a couple hours there all day long and, 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 you, and you get to shoot a deer, but... Um, and it's probably and it's probably why I've never hunted in Africa or I hunted, you know, ground blinds for antelope. It's it's uh, y- you know <laughs> the the fun for me. Uh, you know, it's obvious fun to shoot a big deer, but the the real fun is the scouting and the the planning and the anticipation and uh, being in the woods and and uh, and so I'm with you. And, and when you, if if I lived in the east or in the Midwest and and I could go out and I had a piece of property and I could you know pattern the deer and and put stands up myself and put trail cameras up, it would be so much more rewarding. But for me, just to go and be the shooter. It's fun to be out there with friends and whatnot, but it's not nearly as rewarding to me as, you know, having spent, well, I spend, geez, 45 days each summer out scouting, and it's so rewarding to, you know, find the buck that you want to hunt and then spend the time patterning him and, and, and 
backpacking in and, and uh, everything that goes along with the hunt. It, it's just so rewarding. And, and you guys get the same thing when you have a piece of property and, and you're patterning the deer, putting your own stand up. And then when everything comes together, it's, uh, it's like winning a chess match. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it keeps you, you know, it keeps us in touch with, you know, to me, what, you know, what the hunting is really all about. Because, you know, I, I, you kill, you know, a lot of big deer. Of course, you know, you're kind of famous, uh, you know, for the big elk and the big mule deer, especially that you kill. And I know you told me here before we started the show, I'm going to toot your horn because you made me do it. And I mean, Randy killed a 218 inch mule deer in Colorado, and then he killed a 219 inch mule deer in Arizona. You must have known that second buck was an inch bigger than the first, right? Or you wouldn't have shot it. <laughs> no. No, actually, uh, the, the second buck, I, I hate to admit this, but, you know, I spent, well, I spent oh, 45 days. I looked at 600 different bucks in Colorado this year. Uh, but, um, you know, so I, I, I put my work in uh, in Colorado. But in Arizona, uh, the, the buck uh, that I ended up killing, I, I actually glassed up the morning. I'd, I had no idea he was there. So, no, I was just, it was just uh, one of those lucky lucky deals so i didn't i well i guess i earned it because i was out there a long time but but no it was it was luck but you know you gotta you gotta you gotta take the luck when you can get it well let's you know i'm gonna tell you a little story a uh, real quick one and then i want you to uh, take this to one of your mule deer stocks because i think we can learn a lot from you we had a situation yesterday i had mentioned you know again before we started the show yesterday happened to be the opening day of rifle season here in pennsylvania and uh anyway i was out with my kids and my father-in-law and a, a buddy of mine who owns uh the farm where i hunt anyway he was telling me he had gotten a text message from another guy who was over uh, in the same general area, a few miles away. He had found a big buck bedded in this uh, little stand of pine trees, and I was only about 150 yards away from this thing. Now, with a rifle, mind you, Randy, and uh, he said, all I can see is rack, and this buck is, is laying down there. And we told him, we said, just stay there and wait for the deer to stand up. And the guy eventually couldn't take it anymore, and he tried to stalk in on this deer and I think he he said he ended up getting 50 yards away before the buck finally got up and ran off and he wasn't able to shoot the thing and why he felt the need to get to 50 yards away with a high powered rifle in his hands I, I don't know but this just kind of I just shook my head and I thought to myself you know patience is a virtue and some people have it and some people don't it, now it made me immediately think of you because I know that you've probably sat for many, many hours within bow range of big mule deer like that many times. Uh, talk to me about that whole process and, and, you know, what's the longest you ever had to wait for a deer to get up so you could shoot it? Well, um, we'll take it a step backwards. I, <laughs> the first 25 years of my bow hunting career uh, for mule deer, because that's actually what I started bow hunting is mule deer now, but uh, for the first 
25 years, I just was not successful in killing a big deer. And and, uh, and I would have to say the vast majority of the time, it was because uh, I was impatient. And as you get older, as you know, you know, you develop some patience. You realize, you know, especially after you've got a few good deer under your belt, you're like, you know, okay, what is the smartest thing to do right now? You know, just forget about the fact that, that, that you've got these butterflies in your stomach and you want this thing over with. You want to get that deer right now. You can see him. You want to see him, so you want to get him. Um, and once you learn to overcome that, uh, you know, if, if, if your buddy would have just sat there and said, okay, that deer is going to stand up. And when he does stand up, because he's been laying there for so long, he's undisturbed, he's going to be calm. He's going to stand up. He's going to take a few steps. He's going to look around. I can shoot him then. But he just could not stand it. Um, and, and, you know, again, we're talking about a maturity as a hunter, uh, the maturation process and, and learning to be patient. Uh, but to answer your second question, um, I the biggest deer I've ever killed with my bow uh, lived real close to like a an ocean of pinon juniper thick but he was in a the edge of a burn and i knew if i spooked that deer um i, I knew i probably was only going to get one chance and so i was set up within geez, within 300 yards 400 yards of this buck for four days um just waiting for him to be in the right situation. Um, and in Nevada, you know, August 10th, it is brutally hot. So I would lay there and try to lay in the shade, and there was not much in this burn, but I'd try to, you know, lay in the shade of a, of a, of a, of a burned tree stump and kind of move with the shade, but it was miserable. But to make a long story short, uh, finally, because he was with some other bucks, and they, they were smart. They always bedded where they could see everything, and the wind was right, and he finally made a mistake on the fourth afternoon uh and i was able to slip in and shoot him so uh that's that would have never happened even 10 years five years before that because i just would not have had the patience before that when i saw a deer i thought okay this is my chance i gotta do it now i don't care if the odds are small and and i, I would say if i had to pick one thing that has, has made me mature as a hunter it's my willingness to because I, I scout and scout and scout and scout and scout and scout and i finally find the one deer that i want to kill and um, I finally figured out that, you know what, even if that deer gets spooked by another hunter or whatever, he's going to, to come back to his core area. He's going to calm down. The opening weekend pressure is going to go away. And it's like the deer I shot this year in Colorado. Uh, there were some elk hunters in that area, uh, and uh, they spooked the deer opening day. And I was backpacked in and camped on that deer. You know, I was camped about a half mile from where he lived in a place where he didn't go. Uh, I was back in the thick trees. Uh, anyway, I stayed there for four days, uh, and that deer finally showed up on the fourth morning again, and I was able to, you know, uh, slip around and, and get in front of him. Uh, he bedded down, and he had... Before season, I'd seen him travel this trail back and forth, and I knew that, that he was probably going to come back down this trail uh, when he got up, so I just set up on that trail, and sure enough, eventually he got up and, and came down that trail. But, you know, it, it's I mean, even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I would have never had the patience just to stay there in that camp and, and just 
keep blasts and until he showed up I would have tried to get in there and find him yeah well it it, it just goes to show again you know there really is no substitute for experience it's not like you really I don't think you can speed up the learning curve you know to get to the next level in anything in life you know bow hunting included and so you know for those who might listen to this if you're relatively new to bow hunting and you've had some encounters you know this season that ended badly or you blew a shot or you missed the big one or whatever I mean it's like well we've been there you know we've been there with you and only thing I can tell you for sure is that you know it does get a little easier with time and you know you will be a little more cool under pressure with time you know And, and I don't think that there's a pill you can take to you know to increase the wisdom more rapidly no but you know you can you can try to you can try to learn from other people's experiences and and all that you can read and and uh, all you can listen to nowadays and the videos you can watch although you know hunting shows don't tend to be uh at least the hunting shows that i watch tend to be more i hate to use the word canned but they're they're not as uh they're not what you and i do most of the time you know what i'm saying uh and so but you can learn from other people and you can learn from their experiences and their mistakes and there's a lot of very well you take bill winky uh and yourself uh you know you can listen to what bill winky says and bill winky is a there's no bullshit with bill winky it's you know he's he's very honest and forthcoming and you know you can you can uh you can you can listen to what he says and 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 and, you know you, you you can take it to the bank but you know there are so many really good people out there that you can learn from and if you're willing to actually learn from their mistakes and from their advice uh you know the learning curve is, is going to be so much better for you. Now, developing patience is going to take a little while. That's very, well, depends on your personality, but most young people, uh, most people new to the sport, uh, patience is very, very difficult uh, to, to come by, especially if you, if you grew up as a rifle hunter. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um... I wish we had another hour, Randy. I got to have you back soon because there was, I mean, we, we just have to wrap it up because we're about at our limit here time-wise. I try not to go too, too long in these episodes, but I wanted to have a whole nother discussion about all the, how much improvement the equipment has made, you know, because we could have a field day on that too because, you know, I mean, it's amazing what the companies are doing with bow design now, you know, the, the, even like look at what some companies have done just here the last year or two, you know, moving the center of gravity on these bows a little lower and improving the stability of the the, the bows on target and some of the new cam designs, the yoke systems that they're using to, you know, get rid of that cam lean and equalize the, I mean, gosh, we can't even start, but there's some cool things happening there equipment-wise, too, and those are advantages that we can take advantage of as bow hunters, so... Well, yeah, I mean, when I started, I mean, I still had my first bow, my first compound, but yeah, it it is absolutely incredible. I can take a, you know, if if I get a fairly athletic person, I can take them and in one day of shooting, I mean, I'm talking about a couple hours, I can have them shooting better than I was shooting 
after 10 years of shooting because, because the equipment is so forgiving now and it was so unforgiving back when. So, yeah, yeah, let's have that discussion, Christian. But, you know, uh, I just have to tell you, you're my whitetail hunting hero. Uh, I have your pictures on my uh, on my computer and uh, I, uh, I pull them up and, and think someday, someday. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Randy. You know, it's like we, we were talking about. Um, if you want to kill big whitetails, you got to go to where they are. And so since neither you nor I live where there's tons of big whitetails, we've got to rely on help from, you know, friends and, and outfitters or get out there and do some scouting. I'm thinking about doing a DIY hunt uh, in Kansas on public ground. So if you want to come on that, Randy, we can go hang our own stands <laughs> and stuff, you know. Well, one big one big reason I, I quit hunting whitetails is because my wife birthday is november 6th <laughs> yeah that's no good you've got to bring her along yeah that's what i'm saying and uh and i don't think she wants to be a whitetail hunter so well okay here's the deal there. let's make a deal then because if mom ain't happy ain't nobody happy um i don't know why winky wouldn't be your whitetail hero but i i will take that as sort of my life mission accomplished. well he was until this year and you know, winky, <laughs> you know winky's getting older and, and i think that maybe you know he's got to pass the torch and i think you're the, the likely recipient well okay but next i need like a thousand acres in iowa <laughs> yeah well you know you're gonna have to ask for a raise you know I, peterson's gonna give you a raise you can afford that yeah that's a good idea let, let's let me let me get off the phone with you so i can go right over to the publisher and put that request in okay <laughs> <laughs> i'll say if you need a character reference randy Ulmer willing to vouch for me that's right. Well, listen, Randy, it's been great. I actually am kind of disappointed that you made me do so much of the talking because you've forgotten more about archery than I may ever know. But uh, hopefully. Yeah, but you know what? Every once in a while, uh, I mean, you're better at obviously at white to hunting, and it's kind of my little fantasy. So it was actually more enjoyable to listen to you, and I can just live vicariously through you. Well, you had some good stuff about the the mule deer and, and the shooting, and uh, of course, and, and I do want to get you on again because I want to kind of like have a part two on this. But yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Randy, for being here. And uh, listen, wish you nothing yeah, but the, for having me. Yeah, the best of success here as we head into 2018. And I will see you in about six weeks at the ATA show. Sounds good, Christian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bow hunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.